what you're describing, among other things, is what you could call the disorganized religion of the non-aligned. Yeah, this is the great leap forward. Once you've eclipsed religiosity in any form, this is what you get. The high priest of the self and the monotheism of psychology. 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 How did things get so fucked up? This is the question that was on my mind in the days leading up to my most recent conversation with Stephen Jenkinson, who has been on the podcast a number of times before and who I first encountered a number of years ago when I participated in his Orphan Wisdom School. Over the years, my esteem for Stephen and his unique way of articulating the troubles that too few of us are willing to reckon with has developed into a deep sense of trust. I can always rely on him to give it to me straight, according to how he sees things, and not fall into the trap of trying to placate or offer simple solutions to those of us willing to be troubled alongside him. Like a true elder, Stephen hears my troubled plea and hangs with me as we traverse great swaths of time and geography, tracking the Catholic project to convert the world to Christianity that began with Paul the Apostle through to Columbus opening the door for colonization of the so-called New World by the Puritans, up to the modern era of residential schools, globalization, AI, and the revival of Christian conservatism. It's not an easy ride. Over the course of our conversation, the range of emotions and responses invoked is as broad as the story of how we got here. Grief, sorrow, bewilderment, joy and praise all make an appearance. And by the end, I'm mentally and emotionally spent and confess, I can't take any more. Stephen laughs and says, yeah, well, I'm not sure I can take any more either. As he says repeatedly, there are no answers, no easy way to fix things. But perhaps by wondering how we got here, we can start to get a glimpse of how things could be otherwise. And along the way, uncover a few hints on how to proceed like an ancestor worthy of being claimed. Before we get to our conversation, please just take a moment to learn how you can support this independently produced and community-funded project. This episode is brought to you by MedicinePath.me, a community platform and private counseling practice dedicated to helping individuals lead more authentically soulful lives through heart-to-heart -heart conversations, spiritual guidance and mentoring, and access to practice and learning resources for healing, growth, and transformation. Whether you're looking to explore a more soul-oriented and creative alternative to conventional therapy and counseling, or looking for learning and practice resources to support you on your journey of healing, growth, and transformation, Medicine Path is here for you, wherever you are on your journey. Visit medicinepath.me to explore our range of offerings, including one-to-one -one counseling and mentoring, yoga and breathwork practice resources, video workshops, books on psychedelic integration and soul recovery, 
and access to a growing private community and online school of soul studies. Now, please sit back, relax, and be troubled alongside me as I speak with Stephen Jenkinson on The Medicine Path. Well, you know, it was nice to have a little chat with uh, Natalie before you came online here. Um, she was telling me a little bit about what's been going on at the farm there. So how are things going this spring? You know, <laughs> if I if I look at the dirt and I look at the rotting snow, which there that is a, a technical reality for us here, rotten snow, rotten ice, doesn't mean bad. It just means... Uh, not what it used to be. If I do all those things and uh, look up from every once in a while to the rest of the story, man, you can't beat it. Mm. But it's it's important, you know. It's important for me and my little uh, uh, enterprise to constantly remind myself that um, these opportunities are not that available to a lot of other people, certainly not inevitably or necessarily. And, uh, you know, I, I'm i trying not to live in such a way that uh, human things become more and more foreign, but they're threatening to, God knows. Yeah, and our human interests becoming less and less human, actually. You know, this is one of the things that's been troubling me lately is... Uh, the kind of excitement over things like uh, AI and computer-generated artwork and writing and things like this. And, mm. you know, I was just thinking about the excitement around that. And I was talking to my wife, Debbie, last night about just, you know, I stuck my head up you know, from my little patch of land and took a look into the world through the, the glass screen. And, man, it's just like trouble on all sides. And uh, so I was feeling kind of despondent last night and I was kind of joking that I had an overdose of mainstream culture. Uh, but all of that excitement around these new things like AI, before that it was kind of excitement around social media and the internet and, and on and on and on. And just, it seems to me that so much of what's wrong with the modern world is the result of the majority of people just kind of going along with really bad ideas. You know, this kind of complacency or passivity and or the excitement over the new. And uh it hasn't been hasn't been turning out very well. Mm. So I was saying to Natalie earlier, it's like I don't know if I can do an interview because I just feel like I need some eldering. Mm. And you know, even that causes me some grief because I'd rather call up one of my uncles or something and say, you know what, like, oh God, I'm really just kind of struggling with the way things are. And, you know, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on for you? And like, bring me back down to earth or, but you know, 
I've got, I've got you and I really appreciate how you just kind of, you keep showing up uh, whenever um, I reach out and ask for a conversation and then to share it. I mean, I really do appreciate that. But like, even that, how, you know, you become like a professional elder in a way, like even that has to be professionalized. Like we got to call up Steven Jenkinson for this stuff. Like, man. So anyway, well, I was hoping, I was hoping to get some of your your perspective on things. Anyway, there will come a time when you won't be able to. So, uh, and it'll become sooner than you anticipate. Yeah. So that's an important reminder. Uh, if if things seem overly programmatic, or you know that so many options have foreclosed upon and and kind of collapsed down into one for the time being, and I mean, let's not forget that one's uncles can be part of the circuitry. Alas, just because they're your uncles doesn't mean they get it, right? So there's that. And this yeah. all these things are look, there's no answers. Okay. If if answer means <clears throat> how do we fix this, it's just the wrong emphasis. It's always been, it will continue to be the wrong emphasis. The the more workable emphasis, the more actionable emphasis is how did it get like this? Because that's not conjecture. That's realization. <clears throat> That's understanding. That is much more risky than prognosticating about the near future. Because you really risk your standing, such as it is, uh, by um, <clears throat> faithfully witnessing that things could easily have been otherwise. And they markedly are not otherwise. They are markedly just like this. Let's take a, a handy one off the top. Oh, come on, man. People are doing their best. Really? Well, then you got to make one of two choices on the matter. Either that's palpably false. People are not doing their best. And that somehow explains things or, or contributes to explaining them. Or God help us, people are doing their best and this is what we have. So my preference is to recognize that um, I learned this in the death trade and it's, it still in, holds me in good stead. <clears throat> the allegation is everybody knows they're going to die. I watched whether or not it was for signs that that was so. And with some exceptions, real exceptions and tangible ones, alas, they were exceptions nonetheless. For the most part, I would never have had a job in the death trade if dying people knew they were going to die. Period. Full stop. No qualification. There would have been precious little to do but accentuate and observe and acknowledge the obvious. That's what was waiting. That's what would, would have happened. And it would have been a kind of generic affirmation, a kind of signpost in the sand. Yep, that's where you are. Yep, this is what it's, this is what you're writing with yourself for your whole life. Yep, there's not much more to do now. Ain't it something? As it was, it was damage control and risk management and and conflict aversion and you know all the other things that are the standard repertoire of a system in which they do two things at the same time here's what we can't do anything about and here's what we can do about what we can't do anything about as if the second one is somehow lifts us away from the first one well you worked in the you i yeah. sorry Sorry, that's that's after the pregnant pause there that left to both of us a little uncertain where to go next. I guess I would just say 
<clears throat> from my little farming take on things. We, we don't know a lot of stuff that we could know. And then there's a, there's a he healthy, no, not healthy. There's a generous helping of stuff we do know whose merit is questionable, whose utility is questionable, whose damage is discernible. And somewhere in there, navigation is part of the ordeal of being a sentient adult human, right? Navigation, mm -hmm. translation, not escape, not solution. A time like this will not tolerate the notion that that uh, the last solution is any generic way better than the than the previous one. It's not. I'm not persuaded by trans. Uh, excuse me, by solution. Generally speaking, anyhow, I feel you know I'm I'm constantly asked about them. That's <clears throat> partly my doing because I volunteer uh, once I've been asked to appear, but I don't appear to to fix anything. Because really, if I was going to fix anything, I probably would have started by now, number one. And number two, my little zone would be immeasurably better off for my, all my fixes. <laughs> but I haven't started because there's nothing to start, fix-wise, because fixes are overrated. The capacity to stand and bear faithful witness is the order of the day. That's where the merit is to be found. And on my best days, including yesterday when we had a little infant on the farm whose it was his time to have his first uh, food by mouth that wasn't from mom. And it was uh, magical and it was mournful and it, and it counted the days until weaning and all of those things were put into motion, you know? And so what is that? Is that, are we trying to fix the world by doing that? Uh, the world was in mind, the world was in the background but we weren't fixing anything. We were proceeding as if certain things were so, and that certain things were important and necessary, and that it's easy to lose track of them if you don't say them out loud from time to time. So it was a, it was a practice, really, of a kind of eloquence or a kind of psychic elegance was at play. And I was lucky enough to be part of it. And, uh, and amen. Hmm. So um, talking about the mixed feelings that an event like that brings up in you. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, among other, and, and the mom too, mm -hmm. more importantly, probably she saw the days of her, the end of her breastfeeding coming on. Yeah. Which does something to her mothering, doesn't it? And, and here we are. And are we really talking about feelings anymore? Are we talking about the magisterial passage of time and how it leaves none of us out and that we are included in the time party after all? on the guest list and but this is what it looks like too we're not marching towards you know freedom prosperity and uh, a wonderful transition we're marching our way towards frailties and undoings and the endings of all kind many of which if we have a sense of the moment and a sense of style about it become an opportunity for us to be really be all we can be just not in just not indisputably prevailing but being all we can be, it's a doable thing. That's what humane is. Humane is, you know, you could opt for not being humane, but you've chosen to be humane anyway. Mm -hmm. that's, that's being all you could be. It just has nothing to do with your potential. It has everything to do with how you actually operationalize the machinery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that um, you mentioned 
uh, adulthood because you know as I was thinking about where to begin with our conversation um that's kind of where I ended up you know I was thinking about how you wrote a book on death and dying you've written a book on elderhood and I was thinking how in order for there to be elders down the road there needs to be adults now <laughs> yeah so i was wondering when the book on adulthood is coming because i think it's necessary <laughs> yeah because a lot of people are unsure about what that means to be an adult or even um if it's something that you want to be mm. or if it's something that you should get an on a choice in the, the matter of which is the question i would raise why is it a matter of choice? Should it be? Is it reasonably in a participatory democracy really a matter of choice as to whether or not to be a grown-up? It seems to be a, a choice, actually. You can neither um, kind of give up any... Uh, well, you know, the way Hillman talked about it, I think, is interesting to me. Um, you know, he really felt that uh, modern psychotherapy depoliticizes the individual right. by centering therapy around the inner child work. Right. And I think toward the end of his life, that was his main gripe with uh, therapy. And, you know, like you talk about a lot of what you've learned uh, came to you through your time in the death trade. Uh, over the past 12 years, I've worked in the therapy trade. You know whether that's yoga or uh, counseling work, and I, I think he's onto something there. I think it's true, and maybe it's more true than when he first wrote about that back in the '90s. Like we've had 30 more years of psychotherapy, and the world's gotten even worse. Right. <laughs> so I find myself just kind of picking up where he left off and um, continuing to psychoanalyze psychotherapy and to see where it's. Uh, it's not helping things. And and I think the big one is this focus on childhood trauma. Um, I think it uh, keeps people from being real adults. And that does seem like a choice to me, like a choice that people are making. It's like opting out of adulthood in a way and responsibility and being political and all of that, tending to the world around you. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, you've been traveling around and so you probably got a good temperature read on this stuff too yeah well i actually have a question for you apropos of what you've just said and it would be so you've established what they're choosing quote against How, what do you suppose they're choosing for in making such a choice well choosing to stay in a kind of childlike state right so you know where it's focused on the self you yeah. know I was thinking, you know, it's Easter weekend. We're talking on Easter Monday, so-called Easter Monday right now. And um, I was thinking about how this therapy culture and maybe modern culture and social media and all of it wrapped up because it is all kind of wrapped up together. How it uh, it kind of converts people to uh, become their own personal savior in a way. Like it's like my truth, my way, my life. And it's got right. the feel of a religion to it in a way. Like there's, you know, yeah. offering you original sin in one hand, you know, you're all suffering from childhood trauma. Therefore, you're all fucked up. And on the other hand, offering the salvation, which is take my workshop, take my training, do my therapy. 
Right. The disorder, the non-aligned. Can you say that again? It broke up a, a bit. What you're describing, among other things, is what you could call the disorganized religion of the non-aligned. Hmm. Yeah, this is the great leap forward. Once you've eclipsed religiosity in any form, this is what you get. Instead, mm -hmm. is the high priest of the self and the monotheism of psychology. Yes. Or pop, let's call it pop psychology to do give psychology is due. Yeah, because there's I think there's some good psychology that doesn't yeah. fall into that. So yeah. Clearly, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh Gregory and I are working on a new record for the Grief and Mystery Project. Hmm. Ostensibly, it's about okay, it's not about anything. It's it's love informed, let's call it. It's love inclined of all things to in the teeth of the particular storms that you've just described. And in it crept in a, a story, just a very quick story that he had told me about his interaction with one of his kids. And it twinned with an, an experience I'd had when I was working on one of the two books that's come out since the elderhood book that are both about uh, being a grown up, actually. And um, <clears throat> my story and then his. And then I'll tell you what the, the, the kind of uh, verse that came out of it. My story was, uh, I'm sitting in southern Mexico. I'm working on a book about matrimony. I'm surrounded by a dozen or so young people, you know, half my age or so. And I'm a bit exotic from their point of view, temporarily exotic, let's say, until they exhaust the, exo the, the exoticism and move on. But for a moment, at least, that's the way it was. And uh, a young woman there asked me what I was doing. She, she knew I was, you know, I've written things from time to time. I say, I'm working on a book about matrimony. She said, why? She said, like that. Like, that's, that's done. And I said, well, you know, it's, I'm trying to get the details right uh, while there's still, you know, before it goes away, before it disappears. Because in your generation, this is the part I didn't say, it is disappearing. Of course it's disappearing. So if anything, a bit of a historical record might not be useless in time to come. So she paused and then she thought about it for a second or two. And then she said to me, I want to read it when you're finished. And given everything she said, I said, why? And she said, because that's as close as I'll ever get. Hmm. Wow. I mean, that's mournful and then some. She doesn't, say, doesn't sound like a choice. It sounds like it's some kind of default. And then I'm relating the story to Gregory, and he tells me the story of one of his kids in late 20s, early 30s, asking what he's working on, very parallel. He says, a record about love. She says, why? And he says, I'm you know, trying to get the, the details straight while I still can. And she says, well, God's, excuse me, love's like God, it's dead. Whoa. Yeah, love's like God. So quoting Nietzsche and then some, right? Yeah. And so I mean, out of that, out of that um, terrible affinity between those two observations from people of virtually the same age, came a line that if I remember why it went something like this. Um, so they're making their vows now, their, lo their love vows. Safety first, then me, then you. Which is another version, I think, of the way you uh, elaborated things earlier. So, yeah. I mean, <coughs> excuse me, uh, have a cold still.
Um, one of the things that's so aggrieve, grieving me now, uh, kind of relentlessly, is the observable um, devolution that arbitrarily, I'll say, began with something you could call psychically and materially, agriculturally and mythically, the commons. There's a certain understanding that one could graze one's inner and outer sheep on the commons and you wouldn't be entirely, entirely left out and yours would mingle with other sheep and they god help us they'd all breed intermittently and before you know it it's not easy to keep the bloodline straight but still there's that kind of manifest willingness of um of the people about not to own the whole operation and to give something over for the sake of the rest of the story that we don't micromanage but you know what's happened to the the commons never existed as a reality in Anglo North America. I mean that's one of the things we left behind in a hurry when we could and got over here. That's the that's the consequence of our seeking after our personal freedom, of course. So the devolution took place during the course of the colonial times unto now, from that to what you could call the supremacy of the nuclear family, which was the deal probably when I was born and in my early years. And the nuclear family itself has devolved during the course of your and my lifetime to become exactly what you described, a kind of rudimentary, undeveloped artifact that gave rise. It's the kind of breeding ground for the real thing, the real thing being sovereign, intellectually capable, autonomous individuals. Mm -hmm. I submit to you that we're even now beginning to see the traces of the devolution of that mm -hmm. to something that's so psyche mining, psyche fracking, yeah. <laughs> so unnervingly, AI would be a good example of it, so unnervingly destitute and, and manifestly so, but adamantly so at the same time. Yeah. So what's the job of an older person, uh, you know, witness to this, but not, not I mean, I could say I'm not a slave of it only because I don't know how to work the technology. So I'm not above it. I'm just beyond it somehow, or it's, it doesn't care beyond about you. Me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the status. And, and I think one of the answers is you have to be a, an incarnation of the inability to collaborate the inability now, not the disinclination or the heroic journey of failing to collaborate, but the, the actual acknowledgement that the times are so um, have proceeded so much beyond uh, without you during the course of the latter half of the second act of your life that deep into the second half as I am now in my own allotment um, I'm I could resemble those guys I used to see on the road and think poor things you know they're so past it they're just seem to be bewildered by the wind. <laughs> <laughs> actual fact i can testify from here that it's not bewilderment you're looking at it's the, it's a simple fact that you know belonging is not entirely a matter of self designation that sometimes you don't belong and it wasn't your choice it wasn't your wasn't your call and even though i was born to a troubled time the nature of the troubles now are such that um um that my my instincts themselves seem to belong to some time, some other time. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not for me to decide whether or not that's of any particular use to anybody. But I, I am available to be bewildered in some, uh, fa- in the fashion, after the fashion of an elegy. Mm-hmm. And I'd be more than a little surprised if that wasn't part of the reason that you were in touch, given the weekend that it was. Well, it just kind of ended up uh, landing on this day. But it's it's been a part of what's been coming up for me uh, leading up to our conversation, for sure. Like, you know, last time we talked, just to pick up a thread from that conversation, um, it seems like every time we talk, uh, you offer up something that just sticks with me and you don't explain it. It's just there for me to to deal with you know and so i go away and i like the one time you were talking about patrimony i was like i've never heard that before and i went away and i think what did he mean by that and as i started to look up what patrimony what the word meant and started to get an inkling maybe of what you're driving at in terms of what we inherit from our fathers and and that kind of thing and then the last time we talked you told a story about a woman i think um in the prairies in canada she had written about discovering like an Indian site on her land. And the the conclusion that she had come to was Christianity doesn't belong here. Right. And we didn't talk a whole lot about it. I mean, you didn't kind of explain it, you didn't break it down for me or anything. You kind of like that now. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, uh, it's really stuck with me and, the more I learn about the history of Christianity and and what what it's brought to where it's been imported or exported, I think you're right. And, and that's a really hard thing for me to say out loud because I know how important Christianity was to um, my ancestors up until just two generations ago. Like it was the central to their lives. And I think central to their survival through really hard times. And so to think that, you know, what they brought with them, their, their particular style of Christianity um, being Mennonites, that it's, it's something that didn't belong here. Um, That's a, that's a hard one to deal with. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in this place where I'm, I'm wanting to honor them and what was important to them, what they valued. And, what the reality of the situation here, particularly on the west coast of Canada, is with um, you know the stark reality of residential schools, last one closing just a few decades ago. Like this isn't something that happened in the distant past. Mm-hmm. It's something that is still happening, actually. Uh, I mean, that's a tough one. And when I see really intelligent people like your old friend Martin Shaw. Uh, converting to old school Christianity. Mm-hmm. I just wonder like what the hell's going on? You know, it seems like a regressive move, like a, a move to something that feels like safety or or security or surety mm-hmm. because going forward is like going into the great unknown. Like if it doesn't belong here, where does that leave us? Okay. Well, there's a couple of questions that deserve to be to get their due before where does that leave us if 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 you'll indulge me for a minute yes uh first of all 
You know, Martin and I have talked about it ever so briefly when I was in his backyard in uh, Ashburton in the fall when we were touring with the Knights of Grief and Mystery. And uh, he said it's and nothing he's come up with remotely resembles the kind of overt hostility and dismissal that he's received since. I said, but surely you're not you're not surprised. He said, no, shocked would be a better word than surprised and dismayed, of course. Well, I mean, among other things, perhaps he's doing exactly what your great grandparents and their forebears did, turn to something that was exactly as you uh, attributed their Christianity to them. And would anybody have thought that they were part of, quote, the problem, the settler problem at the time? Very few. Herman Melville would have done and his ilk, but maybe not, you know, not a whole lot more from the historical record is not, is not, doesn't support the notion that people came to their senses in the 19th century to speak of on these matters. You know? I don't know that the 20th and 21st century is, a, is an apogee of coming to our senses either, but apropos of this question of belonging, you know and I know that if you and I corroborate on the notion that Christianity doesn't belong here, virtually everybody hearing that will hear a should or a shouldn't more emphatically implied or delivered by the observation. If it doesn't belong here, it shouldn't be here. But the woman in question, the author in question, never said the second one. And I'm not saying the second one either. Here's why. The question of belonging is not really the question of inclusion, I don't think. Or if it is, it's only secondarily so. Belonging, and this is there's some etymology to be had on the matter, but the verb to belong is a strange verb in English. In fact, it's it's even hard to get close to it as a verb. Like how do you how do you act on mm -hmm. fomenting belonging? You know, and this was the principal. <laughs> this is the principal uh, affliction of your teenage years. Of course, it was at some level that seemed mythic at the time, and absolutely Im impenetrable at the time as well. And nobody ever self-identifies as part of the in-crowd in high school. I, I've never heard anybody say, yeah, man, that was a rough ride. But uh, surely to God, it was a rough ride in its fashion. So Christianity doesn't belong here is an observation of associative fact. It's not, a, it's not an opinion. It's, it's, the observation is it doesn't derive from here. It, is no, it has no trace element of... Uh, Eastern European, excuse me, Eastern Mediterranean Semitic or Hellenic culture of any description, any sort. It's not identifiable in land nor vice versa. This place is not recognizable in a in a biblical context and and the other way around. So we're beginning to get somewhere. But what about the etymology? Well, the verb to belong, because it's an Anglo-Saxon uh, construct. The B in front has a very particular syntactical function. It means, or it not means, it has the effect of amplifying and extending whatever follows it. So it's a kind of superlative, the B prefix. And then the root word of all things is the verb to long, which I dare say the chance of you using that in the last month as a verb is remote. I mean, that's how uncommon it is today. To describe yourself as longing after something is something you'd barely admit to. It seems so 
I don't know, so ineffectual in some fashion, so inconsequential given the troubles of the times, let's say. In actual fact, longing takes its place once you begin to distinguish it from desire and recognize that these are not con uh, you know, places on a continuum. They're radically different kinds of events. Desire basically has the, the it crafts its own work as follows. It consults with you, your desire does, does it not? And says, so how are we doing? And then some part of you goes, well, it could be better. Yeah, isn't it true? Could be better. And, uh, you know, there's a few things missing, don't you find? And you would answer, of course. And it goes back and forth in this camaraderie fashion for a while. But eventually your desire will identify what's known in the trade as an object, the object mm -hmm. of your desire. The idea being that if you grow if you grow close to the object of your desire, then your desire finally gets to do what it's always been trying to do, which is what? Quit, stop, mm. resign, mm. done, and give itself over to the everlastingness of, what, of your achievement. So we all know what happens when you obtain the object of your desire, as long as it's desire you discover, among other things, desire is kind of a racket. It's kind of a racket going on. It has the capacity to represent itself as just trying to work itself out of a job, but it never does. Mm -hmm. So after a while, the object of your desire begins to look tarnished, paltry, <laughs> excuse me, in tatters and the rest, sounding like me, perhaps. And before you know it, you're moving off to the, the allegation of greener pastures. And I'm not just talking romantically or sexually here. I mean, there's all kinds of intellectual versions of exactly that story psychic and emotional and spiritual versions as well. Longing has no such rap, it seems to me. And the reason I say that is from a little detail of the operation. It seems to be the case that the capacity to long is actually not trying to stop. It means to continue. Oh, to be unsatisfied. No, if you've ever been in the possession of longing for longer than 15 or 20 minutes, you begin to realize, man, that has nothing to do with you being satisfied. It's mm -hmm. aiming elsewhere because longing, like belonging, is a skill. It's not an affliction. It's not like want or desire at all. It has the capacity ultimately to do what? To draw alongside what it longs after and to long even still. That's how it works. That's what belonging is, is the amplification of longing. And that's what, it, you know, from the generic point of view, indigenous wisdom includes that capacity to be in the presence of what you long after and long after all the more by being able to live that longing. That would be belonging in a word. That's how it actually works. So Christianity doesn't belong here by that understanding of the term. Absolutely true. Wait, so can you... can we, I'll just finish the thought then. So can we derive a should from this that can set everything to right? And the answer is apparently something like the truth and reconciliation uh, regime. And I would say, suggest, well, I mean, if you try reconciliation without having gone through the preliminary stage of conciliation, you don't have a chance in hell. And this circumstance today doesn't have a chance in hell, residential school, evidence or not. Reconciliation will never take root 
as long as the fundamental precondition for reconciliation that once upon a time you stood or sat as relative equals, mutually recognizing that fact and proceeding accordingly. You don't have that. You have nothing to reconcile. You're right. still in the land of what about me? Don't you see me? And and the rest and not being able to do so. So then what finally comes available maybe is the recognition that if Christianity is not going to go anywhere, it's not going to go, quote, back where it came from, which in our case is not Jerusalem. Our Christianity came from where? From the, Christ from the Protestant Reformation, basically. And then the, the Catholic Counter-Reformation and all of that God-awfulness, right? That's where we got it from. That's where mm -hmm. Puritanism came from, which is the founding religion of, of North America without question. And it's far from done. And it's manifest in all of the, the reactivity around uh, unwanted attention. And it just goes on and on, and it's, it's not going away. Mm -hmm. I'll, st I'll stop. You wanted to speak a little while ago. Please go ahead. Just trying to keep up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, I think it has to do with the eloquence um, and your depth of understanding of language that uh, my my brain has to kind of work overtime, um, yeah. just trying to to parse uh, some of the words that you're using, the way you're putting them together, follow the threads. And, uh, you, you, you know, once you get going, it can be hard to keep up. Yeah, so sure. I, I don't want to be left in the dust and I don't want to, you know, I'm trying to think of the people listening too. Sure. I mean, I mean, there's so much in there, but the, the thing that I was, I was kind of interjecting with was wondering about, okay, so I understand what you mean by, um, by be, belonging. Hmm. Christianity doesn't belong here. So hmm. I'm not sure how they, they go together in that phrase with that understanding of okay. belonging. Okay, very good. Shall I jump in there? Please. Okay. What that means is Christianity doesn't have the, and oh, sorry, back up half a step. When I use the word Christianity, we're not talking about individual people here now. We're talking about a kind yeah. of ideological and historical political reality, right? Yeah. Not a negotiable scheme of reference but an actual reality that's observable that's not a personal saying. not a personal relationship to christ which you could think of as your own christianity but the institution of christianity the big thing yes okay capital c business right yeah when i say christianity doesn't or when she said and i quote christianity doesn't belong here i think the the descriptor is as follows christianity doesn't have the capacity to long after this place because it can't recognize this place. And why not? Because of where it came from, in much the same way that Anglo-North Americans can't recognize anything other than Anglo-North America, the kind of construct. But there was a thing here before there was any Anglo-North America. And even though we changed all the place names to resemble the place we allegedly were trying to leave and failed to do so, of course, um, all of this, among other things, amounts to the following. The religion that we imagine to be universal, because that's what the word Catholic means, capital, uh, small c, means yeah. universal. It means apply, one size fits all. It means applies across the globe. It means it obviates any cultural, linguistic, gender, uh, sociopolitical 
particulars. It's the ultimate globalization before people were using the word. Mm -hmm. But all missionizing religions participate in that kind of conceit, right? That not so much that they got it figured out, but that the world has not done any better than what they've come up with. So the world deserves what they have. But we're not going to consult the world as to its affability in the matter. We're going to impose the thing that the world belong, deserves anyhow. This is a strange mechanism, but there it is. And that's what missionizing tends to be. When you oblige your neighbors to take your God, it seems to me your God is diminished in direct proportion to your unwillingness to acknowledge that maybe your God doesn't belong to those people. And vice versa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is bordering on the argumentative, and I didn't really intend for that. But I, I will say that Christianity doesn't, excuse me, Christianity doesn't have the skillfulness to recognize its limitations. And there's a great skill in being limited and living just a straddle of those limitations, accessing from time to time and then retreating from time to time, reestablishing where the rudiments of what you don't know anymore are and that the fact that they belong and that they're naturally occurring and there's no demon necessary to describe them or to account for them. And if only Christianity had been imported its historical and political limitations along with its allegations that include the fact that, for example, the Albigensian crusade. What? Don't bring in another thing. No, it's just, it's simple. It goes like this. Like, like the, the uh, Nazis did in Spain before they did it to Eastern Europe. So also the, the, the papal regimes that were interested in uh, reconquering the Holy Land through crusades practiced before they went to the Holy Land. And they practiced in Southern France of all places because a certain kind of apostasy had grown. What was the nature of the apostasy? Well, if you can believe it, the people there had one great long look at the Bible and decided that the part that needed most exercise was the gospel part, specifically the life of Jesus part. Not all the teaching part, not all the theological observations and developments through Paul and, and his ilk, but in fact, just the little Jesus example. And that's what they tried to live by. And that drew the ire of the, of the papacy of the times. Is and this the, the, the Cathars? Exactly, the Cathars. Yeah. And so the old story goes that uh, upon the, the advent of the first battle, uh, the second in command said to the boss, uh, so listen, they all look the same. And many of them, if not most of them, look like us. So how are we to know who's the Cathars and who isn't? And the answer apparently was, kill them all. God will recognize his own. Yeah. So even a limitation there would have been handy. You know, the limitation of, man, we've come here with all our mobilized religiosity and so on, but we don't know how to make it work in this world. We don't know how to make it work in southern uh, France. Well, if we didn't know how to make it work in southern France, what do you think southern Ontario looks like to us? To us, quote, Christian importers. So, alas, the inability to belong is, if it's respected, it's not a disability. It's, a, it's simply a part of the att attribution. But if you don't respect it and you deem it to be an unnecessary, uh, misapprehended, um, um, temporary aberration, you get the missionizing thing, which overwhelms the evidence of the missionary, excuse me, the uh, average, sorry the uh, 
the what school, the residential school dilemmas, all the things that preceded them, all the things that continue, all the inabilities of the governments to fess up to the realities and to proceed accordingly, all of that gets gets uh, superseded by, and here's the remarkable thing, the governments of the day are not what you would call in any sense of the term Christian governments. Mm-hmm. They're genuinely not. And yet there's so, there's so much faithful heirs to the example that they can't distinguish it from the religiosity. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would dare say from the, being on the receiving end of such treatment, it would be hard-pressed to tell the difference between the governments of the day and the, the governments that superintended residential schools. Hmm. Just to draw something out in what you're saying, yeah. conciliation. Yeah. Can you um, can you help us understand that word a little better? So the idea there, if it went by too fast for people, is the idea in Canada is that there's a truth and reconciliation committee assigned to working out the indigenous problem and like what do we do about all these atrocities? How do we we make it good and all of that? And so there's this word reconciliation, the assumption being that at one point there was conciliation between the government and the indigenous people. So, but what does this word uh, mean? Right. Yeah, that is indeed the uh, closet assumption of any project that calls itself truth and reconciliation. The assumption being that once upon a time, literally we sat in council. That's conciliation. Secondarily, it means to placate or to try to make good. But the principal understanding is really making good is recognizing the viable equity that is the other person. Not sameness, but a Mm -hmm. kind of a parity of sorts, a a kind of, you understand what I'm trying to say here. It's the gist is that when you sit in council, then you've dealt with the differences, and you haven't dismissed them, but you've included them in your in your accounting of what's possible between you. And by virtue of how the other person is dressed, or by virtue of their particular etiquette that they engage in, just prior to saying hello to you, you recognize something of the fundamental culturedness that you yourself come from. It's not the same, but because you're cultured, you have the capacity to recognize and to hold in esteem the culture of someone else. Mm-hmm. It doesn't and the have differences, to be. yeah. Yeah. The differences are not problems to overcome. They're inflections yeah. on your capacity for the elegance of your culture, you see. And this is why missionizing is so fundamentally disagreeable. It's at so many levels, because it it never entertained the prospect that these people are more than sufficient as they are. Mm-hmm. And so without and maybe better off without you. <laughs> well, subsequent events are more than abundantly clear on the matter, surely. But prior to that, this is the realm we're talking about now with the word conciliate. If mm-hmm. you're if you're conciliating, if you're conciliatory with someone, you're not placating them. You're not feeding them pablum to settle them down. You're recognizing that they're as culturally valent as you are as culturally consequential as you are, and perhaps beleaguered by some of the same cultural foibles that you might be, all of which lends real credence to the capacity to sit down at the table and be together. Mm -hmm. And I submit to you, missionaries never had the capacity. 
And by, by virtue of that understanding, all of those early Christian missionaries, the Jesuits are a particular object of fascination for me because I teach one of their uh, books in the, in the um, Orphan Wisdom School, mm. that they, they were never here. Generation upon generation, they wrote their letters back home, but they were never here. They were postmarked here, but they were never here. And the, the letters, the year-end statements is basically what they are. They, they give uh, almost repellent testimony to the inability of these people and their helpers to be here long enough to take in the place that they claim to be trying to help. That's a little bit of conciliation. Hmm. Um, what's the book that uh, you're referencing, the Jesu Jesuit book? It's a whole sequence of uh, reportage from the front lines of the missionizing missionizing game. It's generally called the, uh, Hur the excuse me the Jesuit relations. It's a whole sequence of books. The particular one that I focus on is called the Huron relation, uh, because it took place about two and a half hour drive in that direction from where I'm sitting talking to you right now. Yeah. Yeah. So amazing, the amazing thing about the Jesuit relations is, to take one example, is that, first of all, they call themselves soldiers for God. So it's already, uh-oh, soldiers. Yeah. So you're conquering something. Well, they were part of the Catholic uh, counter-reformation. or uh, That's what was going on. That's that's part of their work. So they were getting to the natives before the, the uh, Church of England could get at them. Protestants, yeah. And we still have that, that uh, the remnant of that in whose residential schools were belong to which um, denomination, so on. To, to this mm -hmm. day, it's the same, it's the same stuff. But what was I going to say to you about it? Um, the amazing soldiers of were, God. Yeah, they were unguarded because they were writing to their own. You see, so mm -hmm. and I'm going to make an odious comparison, but it's not without merit. Not unlike the Nazis recording the various undertakings that they authorized and felt very important to document. So the Jesuits in their way documented their excesses as well, inadvertently, simply by reporting what they deemed to be necessary, you know, part of the work. Right, like and, you said, it's like the year-end report. Here's how many Indians we converted or whatever, right? Right, and here's what happens to the ones who, who refused our conversion, and this is why, because God is great and Correct. Exactly. No exaggeration. It's there over. And yet, I should point out, you know, to be somewhat, uh, what, fair-minded on the matter, is that they also acknowledged more than a few times that these, the inconquerable natives among them, the traditionalists as we call them now, had a capacity for, among other things, generosity, which so overwhelmed the Jesuits that they couldn't make sense of it. They did recognize the merit of it and said so. And they said they could teach us many things about Christian charity, for example, that mm -hmm. one would, in, when, the, when one's neighbors, you know, fell uh, on hard times, they would part with everything they had, to see to it that the neighbor didn't suffer unnecessarily disparity among them. These kinds of things, you know, they were, they were reluctant in their way, but they weren't grudging. They were just, they were dumbfounded that uh, non-educated, non-Christianized people were capable of a degree of humaneness that clearly had escaped medieval 
uh, the medieval peasantry of of Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I talked to a scholar of uh, American religion uh, a couple of weeks ago, and in his book, it was a revelation for me to read some of these things of the early settlers, how much they respected what they uh, saw with indigenous people, even having to do with um, the way they raised their children and the way they got along with their wives and things. Um, so there is that side of it too, uh, kind of a grudging respect of these savages who they've been trying to convert. Um, well, okay, so I think I'm starting to understand what you mean by you know, quoting this phrase, why you think it's uh, significant, Christianity doesn't belong here. And I know you like to avoid the shoulds, uh, so I'm trying to do that myself and not fall into that. But um, is there not some kind of conclusion that we can draw, like that um, perhaps everyone would be better off if uh Christianity was practiced quietly, uh, like the way Jesus wanted it to be, um, <laughs> you know, gathering with friends uh, and breaking bread and, and not making it an institutional thing, a, a politicized thing, uh, something like that. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we could, you could institute that and see how it goes. Um, I would submit to you that, uh, for a period of, I don't know, a generation, perhaps two, towards the end of the uh, 20th century, Christianity indeed was practiced at a very small scale, very quietly, well off the front pages, because nobody would give it front page status. That's how discredited, or at least uh, how unsought the whole arrangement had become. Yeah. I grant you that things have become politicized since then, and and it's some kind of pendulum at work, and here we go again, perhaps. We'll see. <laughs> There's an upswing, that's for sure. There's something, yeah. But um, but my own task would be to consider something like this. If we, oh, I, I, better I tell you a story. So I'm teaching in, uh, it's a very long story. The short version is I'm teaching in the Native Canadian Friendship Center in downtown Toronto. Now, how that happened is a separate story. But I tried to talk the organizer out of it when she realized, quote, I wasn't native after all. She said, oh, hell, we might as well go ahead. And that's the stamp of approval I received <laughs> in order to appear on the given day. And I did. And it was up in the, it was a collegiate building. So it was up in the, where the uh, old library had been. And the room was probably, it was full. And it was maybe two thirds native people, one third people who look like me or so. And then along the back, a lot of old native people's wheelchairs that they wheeled in from the old folks home next door. It was a strange assemblage, but there it was. I knew it was coming. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but it had to come, didn't it? And so I, I kind of waited. I didn't really try to prompt it, but in the middle of the afternoon, it <laughs> Can finally... Can I make a guess? Can I make a guess? Just to sure. see. Sure. Like, why are we sitting here listening to this white guy? <laughs> oh, if it had been that gentle, but it wasn't, no. Well, something more like, who the fuck are you, eh? No, no A at the end either. No, no, it went like this. Guy put up his hand like this. <laughs> so I was guessing. <laughs> so it wasn't for people really listening, hard. fist in the air, not a not an open right. palm. Yeah, correct, a fist in the air. And uh, he was a poster guy for AIM, right for the uh, American Indian Movement. I mean, he had he had the look, he had the demeanor, he had the the whole thing going on. 
And this is what he said to me. He said, I got a solution to everything you're talking about. I just nodded. And he said, why don't you go back where you fucking came from? Hmm. And everybody who looked like me ducked. Mm -hmm. Just ducked, man. And the rest of the natives in the room kind of looked at each other. But the old people at the back, it was like blood sport for them. They were very keen on their proceedings now. And they leaned forward in their wheelchairs just to see what would become of this white guy. It was quite a moment, I have to tell you. So, I mean, I'm, I'm telling it jocularly now, but needless to say, there was no jocularity in the house at the time, except perhaps for the people in the back. And so, so what did you say? Like what, at some level, what could you say? No, no, you could say a lot of things and you could fail to say a lot of things too in a circumstance like that. You could placate you could try to conciliate without the council. You could try to just assuage and mollify. You could say all the standard self-effacing, self-hating things to get white people off the hot seat, et cetera, and friggin' et cetera. Or, or you could decide, dude, this moment is a fairly important moment and it's been granted to you and you're in the place that you're in for a reason. So stand and friggin' deliver already. Find out what you got. Find out if it can pass the test of the last 400 years or what. And with no preparation, I said something like, to paraphrase it, I said, um, man, you got a great accent. I said, uh, are you from, uh, let me guess, uh, James Bay on the Ontario side, Moose Factory, maybe. And he just looked at me, like, he glared at me, said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, and uh, you're a handsome man, it goes without saying. He said, I said, if I could get an accent together that I could design, it would be your way of speaking English. But I got this. This is all I got. So listen, I did hear what you said. You might not think by my initial response that I'm bearing in mind what you said. but And I felt the full force and the fury of it, too. So here's the thing. <clears throat> You've said, you used the expression where I come from as if it's a real place that still exists. Yeah. You're talking about it like, like I know where it is. Now, look, you know that I don't know exactly where that is, that anybody looks like me and not from one place, if you go any kind of far enough back. But I said, fair enough, that's my problem. That's not your problem at all. And the other thing is, you've said it as if more than likely I'll receive some kind of recognition when I get there, like, like 40 acres and a mule and a parade through downtown, right? That's what you're probably kind of imagining. But you know nothing of the kind is waiting for me wherever this mythic place is. But my problem, not your problem. But then there's this. You figured out, rightly and understandably so, that everything white has become the fundamental problem in your personal life and the life of your people. I could never talk you out of that. Single-mindedness is very persuasive. I couldn't have come up with anything better if I'm sitting where you are. So your solution is to get rid of all of the stuff that looks like me and that is me, that derives from me and so forth. Sure. But here's the thing. You and I both know that four or five generations ago, your skin was darker than it is now. You know that it's so. That's why you look the way you do because the likes of me is in you too. So. As soon as we figure out how to get that part of you to get on the boat with me back to where I come from, 
then I'll, I propose I'll go. But there's the dilemma, is how to remove the presence, not the historical fact, the ongoing presence. To change all the institutions is one thing. But I don't think we're talking about that. We're talking about a kind of, of, kind of uh, suffering-induced, simplifying understanding that everything that's ever troubled you looks like this. Mm. But, you know, every people who's ever had to contend with this knows that it's in there too. Just like however people look like me turned into this, turned into the problem for you in this world, something was inside us too that somehow persuaded us that that manner of proceeding was somehow legitimized by God or by religion or by fate or history or, or providence or whatever it was, you see. I'm not saying we got the same problems. I'm just saying this. People who look like me wake up every day on this continent in the absence of what we lost by coming, such as our cultural discontinuity. And people who look like you wake up every day on this continent in the presence of what you lost as a result of us coming. And I don't know who's got the greater affliction anymore. Mm -hmm. And all the old people along the back row in the wheelchairs looked at each other and said, well, not bad. <laughs> yeah, well, that's conciliation, I think, right? Like the council. Like it's we're, not, we're, until we're in this together. It, it, until it's conciliation, it's, it's something that doesn't have to replay the whole sordid mess yeah. one more time to get to actual sitting across from each other but you can't say hey man i didn't do it you like there's nowhere to go with that yeah it's not it even me true yeah that if you live off the avails of what was done in your name there's fundamentally no difference between those who did that and you so this is the workout this is the you know the 60-year workout of people who look like me on this continent if our shit doesn't belong here is there any other way of it being here that acknowledges that lack of belonging and tries to begin to craft an understanding of present of respectful cognizant presence yeah yeah i think i think i get what you're saying and yeah the respect for the other and the kind of limits and borders on what you brought with you in a way like to and not... what you can't see in the other guy yeah you can't right. see it right right but uh, rather than assuming superiority assuming uh, equal value equity right yeah but equity in in the valuing right because one of the truths is because it's not equality and status which is what what everyone's trying to fight for is equality and status or uh outcomes and things like that but what we're talking about is deeper it's equal valuing of what they've got you know what you brought with you yeah, yeah i think yeah yeah the stuff you'll never have yeah right the stuff you'll never really know well I mean, like a place like home a place to belong like where you come from like like you said well what side do i pick mother's side father's side and then when that starts to splinter like we're like you said, it's it's utopia. It's no place. 
but it's the place that we all long for. I love that word. It's a it's a created word by a writer Thomas More, right? And he chose that because it has that double meaning of meaning the good place, which is how everybody thinks of utopia, the good place that we all long for. But the trick was that utopia also means no place. No place yeah. So it's the, the perfect place that doesn't actually exist. And there's the longing, right? Never going to be fulfilled. Right. Or you could say it's the perfect place you couldn't bear. Hmm. Well, I guess you won't ever be able to test that out. <laughs> no, that's what intentional communities are, baby. Oh, right. Yeah, that's it's what Bali is. You can't bear. That's yeah. what rewilding is. It's the same thing. Yeah. The notion that you were wild once, the hell you were wild once. If you were wild once, you'd never use the language of rewilding, never in a million years. <laughs> well, like you said, with reconciliation, to rewild, there's an assumption that at one point, you know what wild is. Right. <laughs> we know what feral is, though. Feral is a kind of domestication that failed to take. Right. You go back in the woods and your hair starts to grow rough and coarse again, and some tusks poke out of that domesticated pig's face. Yeah. And and you start killing things and you don't know why. Yeah. Because you're not articulate with the wildness. You're mad. Yeah. Yeah. That's why there's nothing more dangerous in these woods here than cats that people throw out their window because they, you know, in a speeding car going by because they just don't want to bother with them anymore. They go feral. They go feral. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you ever run into a pack of um, feral dogs, which can't help but be domesticated dogs gone feral. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. Mean bunch. Yes, sir. Much. So are you tr- drawing a parallel between uh, feral cats and dogs and, uh, you know, us displaced peoples or misplaced peoples? Yes. Hmm. Unplaced peoples. So when you hear, I mean, did you have this conversation with Martin in his backyard about uh, this notion he's getting at about um, wild Christianity or a wild Christ? We didn't. I just find it hard to reconcile those two terms, actually, because to me, Christianity is the opposite of wild. And no. Okay. Well, let me let me respond without referring to Martin and, and his uh, and his reasons why, okay. which I don't pretend to know. Never mind to be able to speak about. Sure, I don't expect um, that. Yeah. So and and he's a friend. So you mm-hmm. know, and I, I do respect him. Um, <clears throat> you know, people who are on the edge of Europe, never mind on the edge, across Europe, were fascinated for the longest time with North American indigenous peoples. Love the example, love the opportunity to go visit them, love to read about them and all the rest, right? Okay. And yet, their, their sons and daughters, the sons and daughters of the Europeans, were the ones who were most adamantly involved in the wars of prosecution and persecution and extermination. That's where the rank and file came from, from there, not from here, from there. So what's, what do you make of that? That basically in the same generational span, that people could seek the full extermination 
of what they felt didn't belong or were, were endangered by in some fashion. And then some weird sepia-toned nostalgia for the good old days when the wild still in its remnant form prevailed. So by the same understanding, then, I'm suggesting to you that the notion of wild Christianity is, is a, like how much discreditation can European bear? I mean, we, North America's got enough, but at some point, you know, you got to make the transition and start to refer to the Europeans as us, not them, ancestrally speaking, right? Oh my God. And now you're, oh my God. No. So does Christianity properly identify with the conquered and missionized pagan peoples of Europe? Is that what we're talking about? And how much documentation is there to rely upon, inadvertent or otherwise? How many, you know, reports back to Central Command did the missionaries issue in those days in the, you know, six, seven, eight hundred, eleven hundred, twelve hundred is done? So I wouldn't be surprised that one of the things that's manifesting in a lot of European intellectuals hankering after a kind of restored, integral Christianity is about this. Two, I should say, also. It's about trying to restore a kind of cultural integrity in the literal sense of the term that predated the undoing that ensued from missionizing. So as not to entirely throw the, the baby out with the communion water, let's say. Yeah. I mean, as I said, how much discrediting historical and otherwise can one group of people take in the course of one generation? And I don't know the answer to that, but there's limits, obviously. What do you mean by the discrediting? Um, what's being discredited? Well, you know, all the dilemmas that beset uh, Indigenous people in the Americas have their origins not in the Americas. They have their origins in Europe and a certain Europe. corner of Europe, actually, yeah. at a very brief period of time, relatively speaking. So-called age of discovery is the time we're talking about, right? So the discreditation is a consequence of the, not the realization, because the realization had been available for a good long time, but somehow the letting in of the implication that no matter what the motivation you dream was for your people coming over here and turning into us. We're responsible for that, yeah. Yeah, they're responsible for how the, all that came to be. So. Let me give you a feel for what this might be like on the ground. And I'm a one-step-removed guy, right? I don't self-identify as European, really, at all. But, but here we go. There's three places in the world that I've been lucky enough to be at, or in, or alongside of, but never been able to belong to, that had such a withering and devastating consequence that I think it'll be self-evident when I say which ones they were. In no particular order, but as I remember them, the first one was, I was brought to a place outside Cadiz in Spain. And there was this big and fairly ugly statue of Columbus pointing west with his astrolabe or whatever it was. I mean, it was stories and stories high. And as the Spaniards said, oh, that was, that was funded by the Americans <laughs> in the 20s and 30s or 
40s maybe it was but here he said and it was all reeds and overgrown and and there was a kind of remnant of a of a kind of a place where people did their laundry back in the communal days before everybody had their own you know life is good appliance system mm. that's what they had there and he said this is where columbus's ships um put their stores in to take the trip it wasn't over there it was here and of course the the water was higher in those days and so uh, this is the this is zero what do you call it the ground zero this is ground zero for that not over there this and to stand there with no no signs no nothing no fracas no sign that anybody ever came there was overwhelming two i'm brought to the mouth of the river ply in i think it's devon but i'm not entirely sure in other words known as plymouth hmm. and there's a little sign it can't be bigger than the, the size i'm making with my hands almost handwritten and it said from this very dock in the year such such or the date it probably was the american founding fathers departed from here and founded plymouth rock there on the other side and exactly the same sense of devastation ensued a feeling that god damn it it could have been otherwise mm -hmm. that from this very unpresuming place vectored out a degree of desecration and desolation that it's it's hard to you can't quantify it you can barely contend with it right and what was the third one you go oh my god there can't be a third one you know there is i was lucky enough to teach in israel a few years back before the yeah. pandemic that's and where i go to man it's like the church yeah. of the holy sepulcher and they brought me inside and i sat there and watched all this happen and the, the women prostrate themselves and wipe the thing the whole thing and there it was again so that's the great trifecta of being a modernist yeah yeah i mean in my kind of uh despair that's where i often end up is confounded by the realization that you know a lot of what we're struggling with contending with here in the in the north particularly north america is all founded on this religion that's founded on <laughs> a Middle Eastern Jew who died 2000 years ago. And I was thinking like, it seems surreal actually that Catholicism has like largely succeeded. It has become universal. It has spread across the globe. Last time I was in a church was uh, last Palm Sunday. I went in to kind of check things out, see how things were going. And more than half the church was probably Asian immigrants, which I was kind of like shocked by. Um, but it, it's it's incredibly strange to me. And I was wondering the other, the other night, like if Jesus was depicted as he surely looked as a Middle Eastern Jew, would Christianity have taken hold in Europe and North America and wherever else? I mean, I can't imagine some of the people who are Christians now, uh, you know, worshiping at the altar of a Middle Eastern Jew. Like it's easier for them if he looks like them, 
right? And it's just so bizarre to me. It seems like some some insane experiment that we've been living out for the past 2,000 years. You know, with all due regard to the conundrum and to your faithful rep replication of it, there's another element, too, that deserves to be in right about here, and it's this. <clears throat> when the missionizing happened, in, in in spades in uh, southern Europe and then spread north finally into Scandinavia around the year 1000 or so and by that time it was more or less complete so a span of something like 600 years depending on where you want to your market's beginnings <clears throat> all the representations of Jesus were sure were only ultimately in the mosaics that they take in what form would you what am I pointing to here? I'm saying to you that the people who look like me on the receiving end of that treatment, did they see themselves in the representation of this guy? Or could it well have been the fact that if I weren't able to see myself in this guy, there would not be much appeal to this guy for me. Mm. So he was completely other. That's what he was. And he was otherworldly in every respect. And I mean, I, I don't know that the representation, well, I'll put it another way. I'm fairly persuaded that all the, the, the East, Asians, East Asians or Asians that you saw in the church, if Jesus was per portrayed graphically to them as an East Asian or an Asian person, I think they'd be up in arms. I don't, be, I don't think people go, finally, you know, Jesus we can use. I don't think so at all. Because to, to imply that suggests that there's a degree of historical uh, blind spottedness amongst that population. They wouldn't have the capacity to get with a Jewish Jesus. And that's not very likely. What happened was in the course of translating the Jesus stuff for the extra Jewish people, they translated all the terms so that they would work in the backcountry. So the, 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 the missionaries were remarkably capable at taking what they could, what wasn't going to be exterminated in the local culture, and turning it into a Christian thing, forsaged and presaged by everything that was in Christianity. So mm. it, it went back and forth between Christianity is your religion, but not like your other religion. In fact, not in any way like your other religion. This is the religion that your religion couldn't figure out. Mm -hmm. Right? So if, if, if you're hankering racially back after a, a, a depiction of Jesus that looked like you, you'd be thrown by the message. This is the, this is the religion that eclipses your religion, just like Jesus eclipses his Judaism and eclipses having any, needing anybody to look like him in order to be with him. So it's not as actually as yeah. completely bizarre as at first blush it would sound. I think the mechanics were were in a sense subtly worked out almost ahead of time in order for Paul to undergo the mission to the Gentiles. He had to translate stuff that was endogamous that made sense internally to the Jews of his time and would make no sense at all to the people in Rome and, and Colossians, Colossus, I suppose, and all those other Corinth and so forth. So he did the translating, right? Which makes him the fundamental theological apologist for the missionizing practice 
that he was not really interested or committed in any way to fidelity to the Jesus example. To the extent that Jesus was Jewish, the Jesus example got in the way of Paul's job. Mm-hmm. So he had to obviate the Jewishness of Jesus, including the parables, to retranslate the parables so that they'd be about universal human constants, not particulars of the Judean countryside. So it worked. Right. It's working again now. That's what globalism is. Yeah. That's what the internet is. It's working again. Yeah. It's another kind of artificial intelligence that. Yeah. Well, man, I can't take any more. <laughs> <laughs> I love that confession. Maybe I can't take any more either. <laughs> anyway, the sheep are waiting and we had two more born today. And, you know, life is also, it's all these things and it's good. And they don't cancel each other out and we don't break even. Yes. Yeah. And we're, we're stumbling across the finish line here at the end of this particular encounter. And if we don't get a chance to do another one, I think, I think we did well by this. I think so too. Yeah. I just want yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to mention too that I caught your last show in uh Victoria, but um I didn't I didn't want to bug you because I know how those things can go and you got a lot on your plate. So I, I sat in the back and uh really enjoyed seeing just because before I'd seen you at the whole band in Ottawa, <clears throat> this time it was just you and Greg Hoskins. And as a lifelong guitar player it was so nice to hear him uh kind of highlighted like that mm. man what a canadian treasure that guy is like for me i was sitting there and i was thinking he's right up there with the people i really revere in canadian music like people like daniel lenoir um, like he's right up there he's he's incredible so uh you, you guys are going back on the road is that right Soon. We're, I think we're in Europe for well, the Middle East, actually, Scandinavia and Europe for a while. And then we come back, back and do another extensive North American tour starting in, when is it, Natalie? Middle of the summer? July 11th, Austin. July 11th in Austin, it starts, and I don't know where it ends. But uh, yeah, we're doing it again. Plus, did I mention we worked on a record just recently? Yeah. It's okay. Coming so, out soon? Yeah, I don't know, uh, but um, but he's determined that he's not going to work nine months on this one. He said that to me last night. So, uh, but we got a lot of it in the can, and it's man, it's really. I mean, if you're a guitar player and you like a good song, what we did this time for the first time is we collaborated on songwriting, hmm. which is much to his credit because he was very leery about opening the floodgates for my lyrical input. You know. <clears throat> But we did it, and we did it very well, I'd say. So there's some <clears throat> some hummable doozies coming. Yeah, I was going to say, so his job would be to kind of wrap a melody around some of your words. Is that how the collaboration worked? or That's more than often than not typically how it worked in, in up until now. Because he's, be- he's a beautiful singer, too. I mean, sure. a man with a falsetto will break your heart, you know? Sure, for sure. As he says... You know, in the first 10 minutes of every Night's of Grief and Mystery, everybody's looking at him like, oh, God, can this guy sing? Because nothing could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> he can sing. He can sing his ass off. Yeah, boy. Oh, that's great. Um, so the new tour, what are we thinking? Um, 
the Catholic, the Catholic catastrophe. What, like, what's it going to be called? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think, is there a name for it, Natalie? Something more upbeat than Nights of Grief and Mystery. I mean, because you oh, talked no. about love, right? But it's like, oh. yeah. No, it'll never be, be in mythology. I like that. It'll never be more upbeat than Nights of Grief and Mystery, but it'll be different accents according to, you know, I don't know what the new record's going to be called. I have no idea at the moment. But the fact that, as he said, at the beginning, we said, he said, it's a love record. I said, no, it's going to be a makeout record. Benediction and what happened in between? And he acknowledged this at the fifth day in the studio. He said, God damn it. He said, it's a makeout record for sure. <laughs> so right that's on. what's coming next. That's a grief great. and mystery makeout record. Nice. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. Welcome. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite app, share it with a friend, or leave us a review. If you're interested in joining the conversation, head on over to the Medicine Path Online Community and School of Soul Studies at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. Until we meet again on the Medicine Path. Path. Yeah, yeah.